The reading is from Genesis 8:20 to 9:28 uh, in the NIV. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each human being, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between you and me and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. 
After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Well, over uh, recent weeks, if you have been here with us, then you'll know that we have been teaching through Genesis 5 to 11, and the overriding message of these chapters is that humanity cannot save itself. That's what we've been saying. And as often as political figures might promise to usher in a new world of peace and prosperity, as hyped as a new self-help book might be, as exciting as medical developments and technological developments are, human beings will not be able to solve the deepest problems of our world. In every human effort, sin will always corrupt, and death, which is God's judgment against sin, will always triumph. And while that might initially seem like quite a depressing message to take away, when we understand it rightly, it's actually a liberating message. And I hope you've been seeing that as we've gone along. Because if we know that human beings cannot bring about the brave new world that we hope for, then we will be freed from the impossible burden of feeling like we must bring it about. And we also will be freed from deception when others promise that they'll bring it about for us. Young people won't feel crushed by having to change the world, and middle-aged people won't feel disappointed when they fail to change the world. What a relief. Rather, as we've seen in the story of Noah and the flood, a brave new world can only come about through God's cataclysmic judgment. That's what we've said. In order to wipe out the corruption and violence that covered the face of the earth, God sent a flood so that waters covered the face of the earth and wiped out uh, all flesh. But in the ark, God preserved one righteous man along with his family and all the creatures of the earth. When the waters receded, the earth was recreated, and Noah emerged as this new Adam in a new creation. The sun was shining, the birds were chirping, the animals were skipping out of the ark. You can Picture it, I guess it must be something like what it feels like to come out of quarantine after three weeks for any who've been in there recently. And I guess we might expect that after all of that, in this clean slate world, that God has um, uh, placed this chosen righteous man in the middle of, I guess we would expect that Noah will succeed where Adam failed. He would be faithful to God and would enjoy God's blessings. And things start out well when Noah gets out of the ark. The very first thing he does is he takes some of those extra clean animals that he had been told to bring along with him. He sacrifices them on the altar to God, and and the aroma goes up, and it pleases God. But what the Lord says to himself shows that although something has changed, it may not be what we were expecting. Let's look at um, verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 21 to 22 again. And this is the first point that I, I want you to get from these verses. This is about the common grace that sustains us. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again I will, dis- will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. You might remember that back in chapter 6, verse 5, God had made a very similar statement about the evil that uh, corrupted humanity, 
of the human heart, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, is what he said back before the flood. And that was seen as uh, the reason why he was sending the flood. And now, after the flood, he confirms that nothing has changed in us. Do you see? Only evil. The flood could wipe out the whole human race, but it could not wipe out sin. Judgment could bring about a new world, but it couldn't make humanity fit to live in a new world. By the end of chapter 9, we see uh, that sin working itself out in Noah's life and in the life of his family, as we have this strange episode of him uh, falling into drunkenness and uh, being shamed by his sons and cursing his children. And we see that actually nothing has changed in us. But what has changed after the flood? Well, it's that God has decided to deal with humanity completely differently. He commits himself to dealing with the problem of sin by other means. He promises to preserve the world from catastrophic judgment until his saving work is complete. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Never again will I destroy all living creatures. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. In other words, God will sustain the fundamental processes and rhythms of nature on which all life depends. The cycles of food production, the rhythms of the seasons, and all the regular patterns on which life depends in this world will never cease, says God. Humanity will be preserved. Creation will be upheld as long as the earth endures, which is to say, uh, until the final day of judgment when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. And so I hope that you can see that what changes after the flood is that God decides to show more grace to the world. More grace by restraining the catastrophic judgment that sin deserves. It's a decision uh, to increase common grace to the whole world so that his saving grace can develop uh, throughout history. But because the pagan world, and perhaps many Christians as well, uh, don't believe this promise that God makes, they face much needless anxiety and despair. And I couldn't help but uh, think about this as I was uh, looking over the news over the last week or two, as um, we've been reading about the upcoming UN climate conference that is uh, happening at the end of the month. Researchers in in Bath University recently conducted a study about the attitudes of young people uh, between the ages of 16 to 25 toward climate change. They surveyed 10,000 people across 10 different countries, and and the results were pretty bleak. Nearly 60% said they felt uh, worried or extremely worried. Nearly three-quarters of them uh, said they thought the future was frightening. 56% said they think humanity is doomed. Two-thirds report feeling sad, afraid, and anxious. And that kind of attitude, that is reinforced by our world leaders, isn't it? 
who insist our, our planet is doomed unless we do something. So let's pull together and do something. Here's how Prime Minister Boris Johnson put it in a speech last week. He said, it's time for us to listen to the warnings of the scientists. And look at COVID if you want an example of gloomy scientists being proved right. And to understand who we are and what we are doing daily, weekly, we're doing such irreversible damage that long before a million years are up, we will have made this beautiful planet effectively uninhabitable, not just for us, but for many other species. We must come together in a a collective coming of age. We must show that we have maturity and wisdom to act, and we can. We are awesome in our power to change things, and awesome in our power to save ourselves. Now, we certainly, and hear me rightly, we certainly don't need to deny climate change as Christians. You know, of, of all people, we should be willing to say that human sin can greatly negatively impact the world that we live in, make it much worse for us and for everyone else. Of course, as Christians, uh, we believe that. But does the continued existence of life on our planet depend on us? Well, absolutely not, according to uh, these verses. Just as it is hubris on our part to think we can bring about, uh, it's pride, that's what hubris means, hubris on our part to bring about a utopia, we think we can do it, we can bring it about, it's also hubris on our part to say we have to save this place or it's doomed. Well, no. Both are well beyond us, and and we try to grasp at both when we forget that God is God and, and we are not. We cannot save life on this planet. If history is any indication, humanity will not pull together to overcome greed. We will not pull together to uh, overcome our self-indulgence and corruption. But if the scriptures are to be believed, that will not be the end of us. Because God's common grace will sustain us until his saving purposes are complete. You see? Only when God's special saving grace has gathered the last one of the people that he wants to be among his people in the church, only at that point will God say, the end. And not before that point. And nothing we do can bring it about, and nothing we do can stop it or prevent it from happening. When Christ returns, the earth will be rolled up like a scroll and the new heavens and the new earth will be established by him. But up until that point, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. God has said that in his heart. Believe it. And be relieved of the anxiety and the doom, the sense of doom. So that's the first point, that God's common grace will sustain us. But the second is that God's uh, common commands will bless us. And that's what we see in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. More than simply promising to preserve life, God goes even further to, to positively bless humanity in the new world. As Noah and his family enter into this 
uh, new creation, they're given commands about how to live in it. And uh, as an aside, do you recognize that that's always how God seems to work? He rescues a people, and then he says, now live like this. The, the salvation comes first, and the, the way of life comes after. So he, he rescues a people out of slavery in Egypt, and then he gives them the law on Mount Sinai. He rescues Christians from uh, spiritual death and resurrects them to new life, and then he says, live in a way that is uh, consistent with that. Salvation always comes first, but there are blessings in obedience. And so here, too, we see that God gives new commands to humanity that he has saved in order to bless them. But as we look at them together, keep in mind that these commands are not simply to Noah and his sons. These are to all humanity who will come after Noah. Wherever we're from, whoever we are, these are to us. Much like Adam and Eve before him, Noah stands as the head of a new human family uh, as he exits the ark. And uh, from him, all humanity is descended. Therefore, these commands are universal in their application. So that's whether a person knows them or not. Whether a person observes them or resists them with all their might, uh, these blessed commands apply. In this section, we see three types of commands, those related to the propagation of life, the protection of life, and the sustaining of life. First, God commands the propagation of life in verse 1 and verse 7, and they bracket this section. Humanity should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that echoes what we know God said to Adam and Eve, right, in the Garden of Eden. As Noah and his family stand in this empty world, surrounded by the wild beasts and and all the the terrors that nature holds, the the question might have been, is the human race ruined or is it saved? And by this blessed command, God says, you've been saved. You will survive. There's a future for humanity. And with all due sensitivity to those who might be unable to have children due to being single or infertile like Catherine and I are or, or for other reasons, we would do well to remember that children are a blessing. It's not simply a neutral thing whether we have children or not. They're a blessing. A culture or a group that views children as more of a, a burden than a blessing, well, that's a culture that's lost hope. And it's lost a sense that there's a future worth uh, living for. And we see that all over the world in various different ways, um, whether that's declining birth rates or the celebration of abortion or, or whatever it might be. They've lost hope in a future. They've lost confidence in the present. They've lost the sense that children are a blessing. And that is what God says uh, to Noah. Secondly, God commands the protection of life in verses 2 to 6. And we see that God is here concerned that proper reverence needs to be given to humans, uh, to to human life, and to animal life as well. In verse 2, God makes the animal kingdom subject to humanity. Have you ever stopped to consider how strange it is that for the most part, wild animals flee from humans when they encounter them? 
for the most part. Before we were married, Catherine and I, we went on a road trip uh, across the part of the south, uh, southeastern United States. We, we traveled through the Appalachian Mountains, stopped in the Blue Ridge Mountains in West Virginia, and we went on some hikes there. And while on those hikes, we encountered some black bears. And actually, we came uh, between, a, a, well, not between, but near to some cubs, and their mom was nearby, and so it's a, a scary situation. And Catherine, being British, she doesn't really understand what it's like to have dangerous wild animals, right? In Britain, they killed them off centuries ago. But in the US, we still have them. And so she didn't know what to do, but I knew what to do. I grew up in an area with uh, black bears. And, and what do you do when you, when you encounter them in the wild? Well, you just make noise. You make yourself known. You, uh, we sang a song about hairy bears, and we clapped and, and uh, shouted. And eventually, they just wandered off, because they don't want to encounter us. Now, why would a bear with its pointy teeth and its razor-sharp claws and with more than enough speed to catch us or to climb a tree if we thought we could get away in that way, uh, why would that be put off by some clapping and some shouting? Is that strange? I think it is. Why do deadly snakes that dwell in the jungles of Hong Kong, why do they, when they encounter a human, generally just slither off the path and go away? Isn't that strange? Why is that? Well, it's because God has placed fear and dread of us on all the beasts of the earth. They know it, and we know it. And so rather than live in fear of animals, People all around the world in every different place have learned to scare them off and sometimes even hunt them and kill them, uh, the, the deadliest predators in their region. So human life is rightly revered by animals. God has put that in place. That's a, a product of the flood, a blessing of the covenant. But humans are also called to show due respect to animal life. And we see in verse 3 that God grants humanity the right to eat any animal, and certainly everything that lives and moves has become food for the people of southern China. But verse 4 continues, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. More literally, the Hebrew here reads, but flesh with its life or, or with its soul in it, its blood, you shall not eat. The thing being prohibited here is eating, of flesh, uh, eating the flesh of a living thing. And the blood is seen as evidence of its life. So in contrast to carnivorous animal, animals who will rip and tear a living thing apart as they eat it, uh, humans are commanded to eat only what is dead, what, what has been killed. And the point is that all life, even animal life, is God's property, not ours. Even though he's given us dominion over the world, life isn't our property, it's his. And so we must treat it with due respect. Humans are granted permission to eat any and every animal, but only after the life has left the body. Now I've read that there were some, apparently, nomadic tribes in the ancient Near East that would have cut hunks of meat off of a living animal and, and not killed the animal so that they could have that meat uh, from the other parts later on. And that's obviously prohibited by this. 
I also think it applies to lots of other situations. I, uh, this tells us that there is nothing immoral about eating meat, despite what some overzealous people might suggest. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us that, among other teachings, those who would forbid people from eating meat are teaching the doctrine of demons. They cannot revoke the permission that God has granted to humanity. But this is telling us that all people, and especially God's people, should be concerned, morally concerned, about the well-being of living animals. And I think that has implications for the food we eat, doesn't it? Uh, To treat living animals cruelly, as they are often treated in modern-day factory farming, for instance. Well, that is actually an offense against God if they're treated cruelly. To treat living animals as if they were mere products on a production line is actually an offense against God. Therefore, I think it is morally imperative on us, insofar as we can, to ensure that um, the meats that we eat come from sources and practices where animals are treated well. And I'll leave you to consider the, the other situations where this might apply. But you see, the general principle is that life is the Lord's, so we have to treat it with respect, even animal life, even our pets, and so forth. But then finally, in verses 5 and 6, humanity is commanded to show even higher regard for human life. In brief, God commands that the destruction of human life, whether that is by animals or by human beings, is punishable by death. I take it that we don't have any problem with the idea that you put to death an animal that kills a human. We're basically all agreed on that. That's clearly a principle here. But what about a murderer? Verse 6 says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. In this command, we find the origin and the God-given institution of all human government. This is the start. Many nations have done away with capital punishment for murder, believing that it's a sign of the progress of civilization and um, that it's it's a sign of humanity's moral development. The argument is that if we value human life, well then, not even the state should take human life. I think if we take the Bible seriously, we have to say that that's wrong-headed. A failure to punish uh, murder with the death penalty, is actually a refusal to show due honor for human life. Of course, we want to make sure the person is actually guilty. There are travesties of justice, and and this is no denial of that. Uh, But um, excluding the possibility of the death penalty is a sign of humanity's rebellion against God and rejection of the value of human life. Mankind is made in God's image. So a murder is an assault against God's majesty, actually, not just another human being, but against God himself. Isn't that interesting? Now, we would accept that someone who attacks a king or a president, what what do we expect to happen if somebody does that? Well, the bodyguards shoot them, right? They're taken out there as swiftly as possible. Well, why should we expect... Uh, any less of the person who attacks God himself. 
as they murder another human being. Any less of a punishment fails to recognize the inherent dignity and value of human life, I think. I mean, it's there for us to read. You tell me. Uh, Lastly, the last section I want to uh, draw your attention to, verses 8 to 17, the common covenant that remains. So we've seen the common grace that sustains, the common commands that bless in this new world, and now the common covenant that remains. The floodwaters subsided and a new world emerged. God's grace sustains the world. His commands regulate it. The destructive effects of sin would be restrained just enough for God's saving purposes to develop throughout history after Noah. And from those first eight people to the eight billion people that we have in the planet now, uh, uh, we have seen God's faithfulness. And we will continue to see God's faithfulness through to the time when Christ returns. We can be confident that God will carry on this way because he's given us a sign of his promise. Verse 11 of chapter 9. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come, that I've set my rainbow in the clouds. And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring a cloud Uh, bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Uh, The word translated as rainbow, that's the same word that would be translated in other contexts as a a battle bow or a war bow, right? The, The weapon. And so... I think that the parallels here are intentional. God is saying, rather than a bow tightly drawn and aimed with its arrows of judgment at the world, he sets his bow in the clouds. He he hangs the bow on the wall. The war has ended. A new world of stability and patient restraint has emerged. The weapons of judgment have become a, a sign of peace, actually. If the bow is the way he destroys, the bow is the sign of the peace now. The rainbow stands as an ever-present sign that this is a universal, unilateral, and unconditional covenant that's still in effect. What does that mean? It's universal, so it applies to every person across the world, whether they know it or not. It's unilateral in that it doesn't require us to assent to it. It doesn't require action. It doesn't even require us to acknowledge it. God has put it in place. And the the rainbow is said to remind God, not us. So that's the point of it. And it's unconditional in that no matter what we might do, there uh, there will not be another destructive cosmic event until Christ returns at the end of time to bring a new heavens and a new earth about. And so I guess the, the, the question is, what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means that every time we see a rainbow, it should fill us with the confidence that God keeps his promises, every one of his promises. And this is one of his first ones. And we see him still keeping it, however long after the fact. There is a future for us. There is a future for your children, if you have them. 
We are not teetering on the edge of extinction, and we will not be. When empires fall, or, or when temperatures rise, or when human sins overwhelm us, the rainbow reminds us that this is not the end. This is not the end for us. The end will come when Christ returns. And I think we should also remember that the rainbow covenant was only given so that the cross covenant could be known. Now, why does God withhold judgment from the wickedness of humanity? He sent judgment to the first place. Now he holds it back. Why is he doing that? He does it to prevent us from the destruction that we so eagerly pursue so that he can save. He can save a people for himself. He, he preserves this whole world with his common grace so that he can save uh, his church with his special grace. The rainbow prepares the way for the cross where, again, a, a weapon of execution becomes a sign of blessing. Isn't that strange? Why should something that was used to kill be the sign of our salvation, our resurrection, our hope? It's because God's salvation uh, was given time to develop his special grace for his people. And in that we rejoice. So with that, we will uh, end and I'll pray and then we'll come to intercessory prayers led to us by James. Father God, we thank you that you preserve us even though we seem to very often run after our own destruction, whether that's as individuals or as a society, that you withhold the judgment and that you are uh, patiently saving a people for yourself. We thank you that we can gather under the sign uh, of the rainbow and remember that we have a future, we thank you that we can gather under the sign of the cross and remember our eternal future, a victory over death. I pray that this morning you would soothe any fears that we might have, any sense of our own doom or the, the doom of our world, and to trust that you will keep your promises, every last one of them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.